podcast. My name is Carolyn Smith-Hilmer, and I just have to start off this week by telling you that I am very sorry. Um, This episode, I just feel like I owe a lot of apologies to you beforehand. This is a very polarizing movie. And not necessarily polarizing in the way that Solo 120 Days of Sodom is polarizing. I would say it's more polarizing in the sense that, um, you know, the subject matter is obviously very... um, I'm struggling to even tell you why I'm sorry. Um... I suppose the reason I'm sorry is because the movie that we are going to be talking about today is Gaspar Noe's um, 2002 film, Irreversible, which is a film that I have talked about briefly before. It is, you know, in the film community known as the film with the infamous nine minute long rape scene. This movie is incredibly violent, very graphic. Um, there's a lot of a lot of things at play, and I really want to do this film justice. So if you can stick with me on our journey today, I would really appreciate it. I'm not going to reveal any information to you about the film other than what is going to be on IMDB. I, I don't want to talk about anything else regarding the film. I just want to jump into it and talk about it after. So this was written and directed by Gaspar Noah, starring Monica Bellucci, obviously like one of the most beautiful actresses to ever exist. Um, Vincent Castle, Albert Dupontel, and Joe Prestia. Um, this film was released in 2002. It is currently not rated, but you can go ahead and say, if it's not R, it's worse than that okay um it's one hour and 37 minute runtime events over the course of one traumatic night in paris unfold in reverse chronological order as the beauty of alex is brutally raped and beaten by a stranger in an underpass tunnel so that is what we're working with today heavy subject matter please stick with me As I mentioned already, things are a little confusing with regard to this one because the film is shown in reverse. So I don't mean that, you know, it's not like when you rewind a movie that you just watched. It's the events are told in reverse order. So let's just jump right into this one, shall we? The opening of the film is the ending credits. The credits you would typically see at the end of the movie with, like, the stamps and, you know, um, the accolades and the actors. That is all listed at the very beginning, and it scrolls from the bottom to the top, whereas typically you would watch them from top to bottom. Then we get the title screen with a beating drum in the background. It's It's... Kind of loud, to be honest with you. Um, 
And that is the same beat as the names that are appearing on the screen. So every time there's one beat of the drum, you see the name. It's very um, kind of shocking and like puts you in this state of being on edge. One thing I will say, every time a new event is going to be introduced, imagine you took your iPhone and you turned on the video hit record and just pointed your camera up at the sky and spun around in a circle. And maybe, you know, you kind of drop the camera a little bit down and pick it back up and you're just picking up random buildings, the sky, trees, what have you. That is exactly what each transition scene of this movie is like. So I would recommend um, that maybe you take some Dramamine or some other anti-nausea medication prior to watching this because I was very dizzy. I will be totally real with you. I was just like, I have no idea what I'm watching. This looks like the ending of every found footage film where somebody like drops the camera on the floor or they're running and they're not paying attention to where the camera is pointed. Um, but that is the transition scene for every between every single event in this movie is, is a shot like that. So this spinning intro at the beginning takes us to a bunch of buildings, basically in a neighborhood with some flashing lights. So, and some loud music, you can hear it. It kind of would um, tell you that maybe this neighborhood is near a club district or a bar district. And we're given, you know, we're taken to a bedroom where there is there are two men, one is naked and one is fully clothed. I don't know anything about the significance or the choice of that, but that is what it is. And the naked man is telling his friend, time destroys everything. He tells his friend that he served some time in prison because he had sex with his own daughter, which this is all in like the first five minutes. So I'm already fucking disgusted. He tells the man that his daughter was all that he had and now he has nothing else. And the guy who's dressed says, I guess we're all Mephisto. There's no bad deeds, just deeds. The naked guy says, well, we have to start all over. Which is interesting because we're about to recount things in reverse order. So we're going to go from the end to the start. And they talk about how loud it is downstairs and how noisy it is. And apparently the naked guy says that is the sound coming from the rectum, which is the name of a gay nightclub. Why they chose to name this gay nightclub rectum, I don't know. I mean, I would hate to think that it's because of some homophobic feelings that, you know, Gaspar Noah has, I would hate to think that. Um, but it is, I did read somebody in a thread on IMDb did say that this is an actual club that does exist and it is a gay club, but it's under a different name. Like it was changed to be the name, the rectum for the movie, but it is actually a functioning gay nightclub by a different name. So we're taken to the rectum. There is discussion going on, a lot of hoopla, a lot of, you know, 
things happening. There's police officers, there's emergency responders, and, you know, um, we're like, wow, I wonder what the fuck just went on at this gay nightclub. They're wheeling out an unconscious man. This man's name is Marcus. And they're putting him into an EMS vehicle. And um, Marcus is being followed by a man named Pierre, who is his friend. And two other men who are shouting really terrible things at him that I'm not going to repeat to you now. The two other men that are following Marcus and Pierre are named Murad and Layed. They're following Marcus and Pierre to shout really terrible things at him, but also to shout at him like, you need to pay me, you owe me money, I knew you were never going to pay me, this shit is ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. So right out of the gate, we know something happened and Marcus and Pierre owe some other people some money. Marcus and Pierre... We find out in the next event, right? I'm going to categorize these things as events. And the next event that we're shown, but what it actually is, is what happened before they were at the nightclub and got escorted out by police and EMS. Marcus and Pierre go to the rectum. They're looking for a man called Le Tenia, which is tapeworm I guess is basically what it is um so that's what we're going to refer to him as um they're looking for a man called the tapeworm that's horrible um I would rather have literally any other nickname than that so Pierre is having literally no part of looking for this guy he's not interested and Marcus is fucking pissed he's so angry he's looking for this guy he's walking through the club it's more of like a i would say like a sex club like you could go to this club and have sex if you so choose you could go to this club and not have sex at all um you can participate in whatever activities are consensual between two adults at this club and so there are people naked, right? It's not just a regular nightclub with banging music and bottle service. They're walking through this club, interrupting people's sexual activities. They're interrupting literally everything for everyone. And they're asking everyone they pass, do you know who the tapeworm is? Do you know where he is? Is he here? Eventually, they find a man who says that he knows the tapeworm, but he is practicing um, some type of kink fetish and is hoping for a participant. And he is practically begging to be fisted by Marcus, but Marcus isn't gay. So Marcus and the man get into a bit of a physical altercation because Marcus is like, dude, I'm not interested. Like, I'm not gay. I'm sorry. Like, I am here to find somebody like I, I'm sure you're very nice but like this is not for me and I'm not going to do that um so eventually he does finally find the guy who he thinks is the tapeworm I want to make very clear that at this point in the film 
Marcus has never seen this person, so he doesn't know what the tapeworm looks like. So he finds who he thinks and who we think, because we also don't know who it is. The tapeworm. The guy beats Marcus's ass, okay, to the ground, threatens to rape him in front of everyone, which is just horrible. And eventually, Pierre, who, again, was having no part of being there, and at this point, I'm thinking, he's gone. Pierre comes around to Marcus's defense. Right after, the tapeworm breaks Marcus's arm. And so Pierre takes a fire extinguisher and bashes the tapeworm's face in with it. Pretty legendary. Pretty legendary. Um, And this man, who we believe to be the tapeworm at this point, is at this nightclub with a partner, another male partner. And the partner is standing around and watches this whole thing happen. And after his partner's face gets beaten with a fire extinguisher, he kind of, the camera pans to him quickly and he just smirks. And that's, that's it. The next event, which happened before the bashing of the face with the fire extinguisher and before they were carried out by EMS and police, is that Marcus and Pierre are driving erratically in a taxi cab. Where did they get the taxi cab? We're gonna find out. But they're going to different establishments to ask where the rectum nightclub is. So they go into a restaurant, they ask, and no luck, right? Um, No one's able to tell them. Marcus is the one driving and he is At this point, what I can only assume to be just absolutely fucked up out of his mind on probably coke. There is discussion between Pierre and Marcus of going to see Alex at the hospital. But Marcus insists that they go to the rectum. He's not interested in going to the hospital to see her. He wants to go to the rectum to carry out whatever goal he has, which is the one that we just saw where he killed the tapeworm. Eventually, um, we're shown that before they had possession of the taxi cab, um, they got a ride with a taxi driver who is an Asian man. And he is attempting to take Pierre and Marcus to the club. But Marcus can't shut the fuck up for 20 seconds so that they can ride in a car and gets them thrown out of the car after he screams racist stuff and at the driver and hits the driver and it's just the driver gets out and he forces the two of them to get out of the car pepper sprays them and then whenever they do whenever they're like having this pepper spray interaction That's when Marcus and Pierre jump in the car and steal it and drive off. The two men that I mentioned earlier in the film who were following Marcus and Pierre out of the nightclub asking them for, like, where's my money? You didn't pay me. Morad and Layad. They are, at this point, we see them 
and Marcus together and Pierre, excuse me. And they are basically assisting Marcus and Pierre in finding a rapist. So the four of them track down a street where there are many prostitutes and sex workers hanging out. And as they go through each woman, they are asking who is Guillermo Nunez. And at this point in the film, there's a bit of a language barrier because the um, prostitutes mainly speak Spanish and everybody else in the movie speaks French. So a little confusing. Pierre tries to speak Spanish, but it doesn't, it's not great. Um, So after going through a bunch of women, they do finally find who they're looking for. Essentially what they had is they found um, an ID. And this ID is the person that they're looking for. They, I believe at this point, think that the person with the ID knows who the rapist is. So the name on the ID is Guillermo Nunez. Guillermo is actually working as a transgendered prostitute um, under the name of Concha. So their legal name, I suppose, on their license would still be Guillermo, but that's not the name that this person goes by. They go by Concha. And Murad and Layed are, are roughing up Concha, which is, I feel like, not really helpful in this situation. They're punching her and hitting her and they hold her at knife point and Marcus is just trying to get information from her about a rape that occurred. And Concha tells Marcus that it was the tapeworm who was responsible for the rape. So they unfairly rough up Concha some more, which I think is just why at this point. And she tells them that the tapeworm is at the rectum, which is a gay club. So the four men fighting with this woman have made the other prostitutes in the area really, really angry, and they all chase after them to a taxi where they escape together. In the next event, Pierre is speaking with the police about the timeline of when he, Marcus, and Alex left a party that they were all at. They were at like a house party. They all left together. Pierre tells the cop that nobody fought with anybody leading to anything bad that might have happened. He gives the police officer his phone number. He's in shock. He can barely talk to this officer. Like, obviously he's afraid um, by whatever it is that occurred or, or worried about what he saw. And he gets his ID back and he's dismissed. At this point, we see Murad and Layad meeting Marcus and Pierre for the first time. They show up and basically say, you guys look like shit. Don't rely on the police for help with this attack that took place. They offer Marcus and Pierre to get revenge for a little bit of money. And he says that vengeance is a human right. Murad says they found a rapist before for another person so that that person could get revenge. And he explains also to Marcus and Pierre that there was an ID found and that the name on it is Guillermo Nunez, which is 
Concha. We see Marcus and Pierre in the next event leaving a party. And they're being stopped by a police officer from basically going the way that they're going on the street. And they overhear people saying terrible things. Basically, they're like, why can't I go this way? What happened? What's wrong? And um, somebody in the background says, some whore got raped. So Marcus looks over and sees a gurney with Alex on it. She is completely bloodied. Her face has been bludgeoned. She's in a coma. And Marcus is sobbing over her body. In the next event, we're shown Alex leaving the party. The same party that we just saw Marcus and Pierre leaving, and then we saw Alex's bloody body. Alex is waiting for a taxi, okay? And she's waiting for a long time. This was in the days before Uber. Another woman, who is also a sex worker, um, advises Alex to take the pedestrian walkway tunnel nearby because it's safer um, if Alex is going to be walking alone. So Alex takes this person's advice and she goes into the tunnel and finds the tapeworm with Concha, who he is... The interaction reminds me of... um, like a pimp and their employee interacting together. Um, It's not a nice interaction by any means. And it, it looks like maybe the tapeworm was maybe also going to rape Concha. And again, this is the same woman that Pierre and Marcus and Murad and Layad found previously. Okay. When Alex comes down, um, the tapeworm, she's walking down the tunnel, the tapeworm shifts his focus away from Concha to Alex and lets the prostitute leave. And this basically leaves Alex completely alone with the tapeworm in the tunnel. And this is where the infamous nine-minute rape scene occurs, and I'm not exactly sure... I'm really comfortable discussing it in full detail because of how long and gruesome it actually is. A few things I will talk about regarding it is that it is filmed in one long static shot, which much like Michael Haneke films that I've discussed previously forces us to take part in the witness of this crime. And I will tell you also that it is at this point that I am realizing that this is the real tapeworm and that the man that Marcus and Pierre killed at the beginning at the rectum was actually the tapeworm's companion for the evening. So they actually killed the wrong guy. And that's why the tapeworm is seen smiling after Marcus and Pierre are done killing the other guy. One thing I do want to point out regarding this rape scene is because 
and this is because it's an actual um, part of the plot of the film, is that during the act, um, essentially there's, there's so much hatred in the dialogue um, that the tapeworm is is speaking to, I should say monologue, because he doesn't allow her to talk. There's so much hate in the things that he says. Um, he calls her pig, swine, stuck up, you know, rich bitch, just really terrible things. The hatred never, ever stops. And at this point, at this time, right, during this scene, he asks her in the middle of sodomizing her if she is wet or if she is bleeding. He doesn't care either way because it's not going to make him stop, but he's asking. So after the rape is over, Alex is like trying to crawl away. She's like throwing up, coughing, choking, and obviously in a lot of pain. And so she's trying to crawl away to get to a point where she can like stand up on her own. And before she can even get to the point of standing, Tapeworm says, I'm not done with you. So he kicks her repeatedly. Um, he beats her face into the concrete. And once he thinks that she's dead, he says, okay, now I'm done with you. And he just leaves. I'm so glad I got that part out of the way. At the event, next event, so the thing that happened, you know, before the rape, Marcus, Pierre, and Alex are at a house party. And Marcus is giving Pierre a really hard time about his sexuality, questioning it over and over, assuming that because he doesn't get, he doesn't hook up with women all the time that he's gay. Um, just like really annoying the fuck out of him. Like I, we don't even know what Pierre's sexuality even is. And frankly, it's none of our business, but like Marcus can't let it go. So they go into a bathroom. There's two other girls there. Marcus does a bunch of blow makes out with the other girls in the bathroom and Pierre just kind of leaves and he's like, look, I've done this before. I'm not really interested in doing this right now. Like you're immature. Marcus goes back out to the party to find Pierre and forces Pierre onto a bed full of women that Pierre doesn't want to be on. Like Marcus is like trying to like force sexual activity on Pierre with other people. And it's like, dude, just fucking relax. Um, so, but the girls kiss and touch Marcus to try to get him to stay, but Pierre is mad at him because he brought Alex to this party as well, and he's leaving Alex to dance alone and making out with other girls and doing drugs and being a fool, all while his girl is there and she doesn't seem to care. So, Pierre tries to get Marcus to drink some water. He doesn't want to drink water. We all know that people who are fucked up never want to drink water, which is really annoying. And then Marcus pees in the kitchen sink and Pierre is embarrassed and done. He's done. So they find Alex and Marcus tells Alex that Pierre is boring 
And Marcus leaves to go do I have no idea what. And Alex goes over to Pierre to dance with him. And he tells her, I just like to watch you. I'm, I'm content with watching you dance and be happy. You never used to dance like this before. And implies that they used to date or have some sort of like sexual relationship with one another. And Marcus eventually finds Alex later at the party upstairs having a chat with her pregnant friend who she hasn't seen in a while. And Marcus is so stupid acting and so loaded out of his mind that he can't even have a conversation with her. So she says that she wants to go home to lay down and Marcus keeps saying he's going to drive her home. But we all know that he's not driving fucking anywhere because he's blasted. So before she leaves, Pierre sees her at the door and gives her the most amazing compliment I've ever heard. Looking at you is like an aesthetic pleasure. He asks her to stay. He says, I just came to look into your eyes and watch you dance. I miss you. I haven't seen you in months. And she leaves and she says, I'll call you tomorrow. Get home safe. Next event. Marcus, Pierre, and Alex are in the elevator at a subway station in Paris, and Pierre and Marcus are talking about whether or not it's possible to make Alex come. And the whole thing is making her super uncomfortable. She's trying to tell them about this book that she's been reading regarding premonitory dreams, precognitive dreaming, and the men are completely dismissive of her interests and continue to talk about her body and sex. They go on and on about it for so long, in fact, even I was uncomfortable and I wasn't even there. Eventually, they do get on the subway and continue to exchange sexual experiences that they both had with Alex. Pierre gives Marcus a pill with a name that I don't know how to say, and I tried to look up, but as far as I can tell, it's not a real thing. So who knows what it is? Alex goes in on Pierre about how he's too cerebral and too much in his head and too much of an intellect to be good at sex. So let's just drop it, basically. And she tells Pierre that he's paranoid and that some things simply cannot be explained. He used to talk too much during sex and used to be so worried about her, her pleasure rather than his own pleasure that um, it, if she would notice during it that like he wasn't enjoying himself, then it made her not enjoy herself. And Pierre talks about Marcus right in front of him like he's a caveman and has no other characteristics other than he likes to fuck. Finally, they get off the subway because I can't wait for this conversation to be over, right? Next event. Marcus and Pierre, sorry, Marcus and Alex, excuse me. So sorry, Marcus, not gay, sorry. Marcus and Alex laying in bed together after Sex, I would assume they're naked. Pierre is leaving a message on Alex's answering machine saying that his car broke down and that they're going to have to take the subway to the party tonight. And Alex tells Marcus that she had a really weird dream that she was in a red tunnel that broke into two pieces. And she says that she thinks it was just a weird dream because she's worried about her period. She's late, but only by a couple days. So... Marcus is like, hey, I got to get out of bed. I got to go buy liquor and need to make sure that I'm in a good mood for tonight to Pierre because I want to be nice to him because I stole his girl. And Alex says that she's not an object. 
She made all the decisions, including the one to leave Pierre for Marcus. She says it is always the woman that gets to decide. They exchange in some tickling and get out of the bed to make coffee and listen to music and prepare for the party. But, you know, it's a very sweet moment. And the sweet moment is intercepted by Marcus telling Alex that he wants to have anal sex with her. If I was having a nice romantic moment with my partner and they said that to me, I would, I would not know how to take it. It, like, I think maybe some tone or something or was lost a little bit for me because, um, it didn't, the way that Marcus said it didn't really seem like a sincere ask or like a sincere um request it was i don't know it felt very off to me i know that there is a lot of discussion surrounding this film with regard to the actors and how things are portrayed i i want to say that maybe it was like an intimate moment that the two of them were sharing and he did genuinely want to bring up the topic and like have a conversation with her about it but the way that his character said it didn't really sell it to me that way but i digress um she brings up the topic of her potentially being pregnant again and um he says it would be fun if she actually were pregnant for sure and so she gets in the shower he takes her wallet he apparently never has cash because he's immature as fuck and goes to the liquor store to get um, alcohol for the party and after he leaves Alex takes a pregnancy test, which is quite literally the fastest rapid response pregnancy test in the entire universe, and is, in fact, pregnant. The next event we see is Alex laying alone in her bed with her hand on her stomach, and we get two flashes, not one, but two, of a movie poster that she has above her bed for 2001 A Space Odyssey, the one with the baby on it. And previously to that, Alex had been laying in the grass in a park reading a book called An Experiment with Time by J.W. Dune. While children are playing around her, they're, you know, running in a sprinkler. There's other um, other women and other people around in the park sunbathing and reading and, and having a nice day, you know, however they choose to, to spend that day. We get an overhead view of the children running in the sprinkler and the camera moves, I believe it's clockwise, um, literally in a circle, which again makes me super, super dizzy. And finally, we get a white screen. That white screen turns into a strobing screen and the strobing goes on for a really long time, by the way, like almost a minute. And then that turns into a black screen and then the words, time destroys everything, are presented. Okay. So, the way that I just talked about that, I'm sure that you think that I watched two totally separate movies. One movie before a rape and one movie after a rape. And I want to tell you for certain that no, this was all one movie. And I know that that's hard to believe based on the things that I just told you. Okay, so um, let's start 
with the fact that this movie is a little confusing, especially... I'm sure it's even more confusing for you to listen to me talk about it, but it's also confusing to watch it. Um, I knew it was told in reverse chronological order whenever I turned it on to watch it. I didn't know that I would still find it to be that difficult to follow. Um, But I think that kind of adds to how disorienting the whole thing truly is. Um, there was a release, I believe, earlier this year, um, in New York and California where the film was actually told in chronological order, and I don't know how I would feel about something like that. I kind of think that it's kind of, um, hmm. The movie is not positive, really, in any way at all, um... But you know, whenever you regret something and you're like, well, if I could just, if I could turn back time, right? Like if I could just go back and and change that one thing, then I would do it. And there's so many instances in this movie where I'm sure that the characters had been thinking, if I could have just gone back and not done drugs at a party to piss my girlfriend off, If I had just waited a little longer for a taxi instead of taking this pedestrian tunnel. Um, If Pierre had gone with her and, you know, taken her home. Like, there's so many things that um, when something bad happens, you think, what could I have done differently to prevent it? And the fact of the matter is, it's not really worth dwelling on what you could or couldn't have done because the bad thing that happened already happened. And I know that's not helpful or at all uplifting, but time is not reversible. You cannot go back and change the course of a series of events. There's nothing you can do. And... That is why watching this film in reverse is that much more difficult. Because you already know what happens to Alex whenever you get to the second half of the movie. You already know what Marcus and Pierre did. So that in and of itself... The whole time you're watching, you're just like, oh my god, don't do that. Oh my god, don't say that. Please don't do this, this, and this. You feel so helpless because the Alex and Marcus had truly had a wonderful day together all the way up until they got to the party. When they went to that party is when things shifted. That's when, you know, not that Pierre and Marcus were doing the right thing by speaking openly about their sexual experiences with Alex because that was just fucking weird. But, like, Marcus is so immature anyway, and, like, that's not personally somebody that, like, I could be with. Um, But for whatever reason, he and Alex are very happy together, and they had a beautiful day together, and everything changed that night. Um, so you just feel so helpless watching them have such a beautiful day together right after you watched everything that happened after. 
talking about the film itself before we read any more into the actual film, um, let's start with camera work and cinematography. This movie is going to fuck you up. I'm no cap. I'm not lying. I was so dizzy at certain points when I was watching this. The camera is constantly moving in every single scene, except for the rape scene. Each scene is shot completely unbroken, like it's shot in all one take. And that's why the tracking scenes are like, it was filmed with a handheld camera. And that's why the tracking scenes are so like up close and shaky and everything's so disorienting. It's like, almost like you were there, right? And like the characters sometimes look back toward the camera. I don't think they're looking directly at the camera. It's not like, funny games it's not like a fourth wall break type of thing but it's like they're the person with the camera Gaspar Noah is so close to them um the tracking scenes are almost like we're walking directly behind the person on the screen with our iPhone like getting ready to record something that's going to happen and the rape scene is the only one where the camera is completely static um in an article titled The Rape Had to Be Disgusting to Be Useful by Jeffrey McNabb for The Guardian, it is discussed that the actual direction of the tunnel scene itself was done by Monica Bellucci and Joe Piesto, and they're the two participants of the scene. Um, they, I think, had to be given the creativity to do this because... It's such an intimate and mortifying scene to take part in. I read somewhere, um, I think maybe in on Reddit, maybe perhaps that, and I don't know if this is true, that Monica Bellucci has actually never seen, like has never viewed the scene in its entirety, even though she was the one who acted in it. And I can understand why. Um, but in something as violent as and graphic as this, I, I think that it's only right that the people that are participating in it should have the power to decide how it goes. It involves so much trust between the two of them, so much communication between the two of them. Um, I don't know that I would ever be able to do that type of acting myself. In an IndieWire article titled Why Gaspar Noah Directed on Cocaine, Masturbated in His Own Film, and Shot a Live Birth by Tarek Shuker, Gaspar discusses that he utilized cocaine as an aid to shoot this movie. And I have personally never done cocaine, um, but I feel like if I were to do cocaine and I were to film a movie... The camera work would be identical to what I saw in this movie. Um, apparently, Gaspar is not of peak fitness level. And the cocaine helped him to numb the pain of shooting with a large handheld camera for hours and days on end by simply turning him into a robot to where he didn't feel the pain or how sore his muscles were. 
He did say, though, that by um, at the point when he stopped using the cocaine during the filming um, and when it finally set in how sore and how much in pain he actually was in, um, he couldn't even lift a glass of vodka to his mouth to drink it. So that's pretty, it's pretty extensive, right? Um, and I've already commented on some of the dialogue. I, I found some of the dialogue in this movie to be like really over the top. Like there's such a strong focus on being gay. A lot of the F slur spoken and thrown around. A um, lot of talk about getting um, anally penetrated, like, the fact that the club is called the rectum, I'm like, really? Did we have to call it that? Like, I... Anyway. Um, while I found it to be a little off-putting and over-the-top and homophobic even at times, um, apparently Dario Argento, the great, um, thought that it might be a bit of a problem as well. So... Gasper and Dario, I, I guess, were friends, and, and um, Gasper previewed um, a scene in the rectum with Dario, and Dario said something basically to the effect of, like, you're, you're not a part of this community, and you're talking about it. Um, you're going to get chewed up and spit out for this. And Gasper decided, okay, I hear you. Um... So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a cameo in my own movie by being a man masturbating in the rectum. In the club, the rectum. So he's taken on a part in the film, in the nightclub, by um, masturbating in his own movie. I don't know... I think he basically thought, like, well, if I do that, then that means I'm a part of it. But, like, whether or not he's actually gay or not, like, I don't really know. Um, so I'm not really sure that it proves a whole lot. And I don't know that I have the liberty to speak on whether or not the fact that the whole movie was homophobic. But, like, um, I did find some things to be a little troubling. I don't think that the fact that he went in and masturbated in the nightclub made it better, necessarily. Um, but I, I kind of get the goal he was going for. And I do have to just say, if nothing else, I have to give him props for even doing that in front of his colleagues and his cast members. Like, he mentioned it was difficult to um, keep... And he, was, he said it was difficult to get and maintain an erection, and I can certainly understand that. Um, I would never, ever do that in front of my colleagues, I don't think. Um, so, so, yeah, I hear him on that. In terms of sound, now this is something that I found while researching. It's not um, something that I was able to experience, and I'll tell you why. During the first hour of this movie, there is the use of a sound technique called sensoround. Sensoround is the use of a sound that is not audible to the viewer, 
but is used to enhance the viewing experience in a theater. So Gasper used 27 hertz as the frequency, and while it is a sound that cannot be audibly heard, it creates a feeling, right? So like it would be um, like there is a noise, right? It's just not something that the human ear can actually hear. It's sub-audible, but it's still there. Um, so that does mean that your brain can still pick up on it and create an experience for you based on that sound. And so even though it, it can't be audibly heard, it does create a feeling of nausea and anxiety and um, just overall maybe even a sense of panic and i'm so fucking happy i never saw this movie in a movie theater with this sound feature i watched it at home and um it's my understanding that your typical home sound system will not emit these types of, of frequencies and so that was used in the sense around technique so um i was not experiencing that and i so happy because the actual film itself was just enough, right? I didn't need any extra sounds. Um, so thanking everybody for that. Um, okay, so now on to our analysis part where we ask ourselves, what does it all mean? And I'm sorry, I just felt like it was really cool to talk about the movie um, before we talked about the um, interpretation. So let's talk about that now. We are presented with the idea that time destroys everything. We're given this idea at the beginning, and we're given this idea at the end. It's one of the first lines of dialogue we hear, and it is the last line of text that we're shown before the film ends. With this in mind, there's two things I would like to highlight that like, regard this idea or support this idea. The first is that this is essentially the second law of thermodynamics, which is not my particular area of expertise, but I'm going to do my best to attempt to explain it in a way that makes sense and makes me sound educated. Essentially, this thermodynamic principle holds that natural processes are irreversible and that in an isolated system, like the universe, entropy can only increase. Entropy is a state of chaos. I think we can all agree that this film is complete and utter chaos. The event of Alex's rape is irreversible. There is unfortunately nothing that anyone can do to take that experience away from her, and no amount of revenge will ever fix it, right? This irreversible event is what puts everything else into this state of complete and utter chaos or entropy as we can refer to it in this circumstance. Now, the second thing I wanna to touch on is that there is particular attention paid to the book that Alex is reading. First, she brings up the concept of premonitory dreams in the elevator of the subway station to Marcus and Pierre. There's a book resting on her nightstand when she and Marcus wake up from their nap. 
And it is the same book that she is seen reading in the park at the end of the film. What book is she reading exactly? Well, I mentioned previously, the book title is called um, An Experiment with Time by J.W. Dune. What this book essentially theorizes, expands upon, develops, and illustrates is the concept of precognitive dreams, which are basically dreams that foresee events that will occur in the future at some point that will be personal events to the individual that had the dream and are not going to be broad, sweeping, general events. So if we look at the story chronologically, first, Alex is reading the book in the park. She then places it on her nightstand and we see it when she and Marcus wake up from their nap. She tells Marcus that she had a dream of a red tunnel that broke into two pieces. She dismisses it by saying that she thinks the dream was just weird because she's been worried since her period is a few days late. And then later in the elevator in the subway station, she brings up the concept to Pierre and Marcus about precognitive premonitory dreams and they completely dismiss her. And they, they also make a comment, like something along the lines of like, well, she had a dream, so now it's fate. Like everything that happened is gonna happen, you know? Um, which I think is unfair. That's not really, I don't know. If somebody's like, if somebody brings up something or is reading about something or is interested in something or is even a little worried about something, it's probably best to do the human thing and listen to them and not dismiss what they're saying. But that's a personal opinion of mine. You can do whatever you want in your own life. And after the party, when she leaves alone, she walks into a red tunnel. Um, even through, like, even though this theory of precognitive dreams has been I don't know about the way it stands today, but um, when it was published, it did have um, some support from the scientific community at the time. So Alex's anecdotal evidence of her dreaming about a red tunnel and then being in a red tunnel is good enough for me. There's other types of strange foreshadowing. For example, the conversation she has with Marcus in bed um, after they wake up from their nap, she's talking about how, um, you know, basically talking about how the woman always gets to choose. She's not an object. She is a human. Um, well, unfortunately, in her rape, she was not able to choose. That was taken away from her. Marcus brings up the idea of having anal sex with her. Unfortunately, during her rape, she was sodomized. Um, it's just, there's so many events of foreshadowing that it makes you more uncomfortable the longer you watch it. I don't think this movie is going to be a rewatch movie for me, but if it if it ends up being one, I will take 
um, extra time to really digest all of the foreshadowing that I might have missed on my first go. Um, so what's really inter interesting to me, like I've said, is that she does find herself in this red tunnel that she saw in her dream, and it's actually the complete pivotal moment of the film. Before that scene, the movie was filled with violence and aggression and blood and revenge. And after that scene, there's no violence at all. They're simply a happy, loving couple. And Alex's sweet friendship with Pierre, she's pregnant and happy to be so. It's like you're watching two completely different movies, one that occurs before the rape and one that occurs after. So the tunnel is not the only thing split into two. The film itself is in a way split into two as well. Um, discussing briefly the, um, the lust for revenge. I don't exactly know what Gaspar Noah intended with um, the revenge that we see taking place in the film. I want to say that it is my personal belief that um, some people have what's coming to them, okay? This guy, the, the real tapeworm, not the guy that Marcus and Pierre killed, but the actual guy, yeah. is a piece of shit, okay? I'm like, I'm not going to take that away from anybody. He is. He's horrible. In terms of this act of revenge, sometimes people are so blinded with rage to carry out acts of revenge that they do so carelessly. And there is truly collateral damage to this type of action. Um, that is why Marcus and Pierre end up with Murad and Lloyd, right? Like they, they, they get these two like street criminals who are just like randomly appearing and like, Offer to give them money to help them find a guy. And these people are just trying to scam him, right? But he can't see that because he's so upset that he can't do anything else. Then, you know, they go and rough up some prostitutes looking for the rapist. Like, they didn't do anything wrong to you, dude. Just leave them alone, right? Like, I would like to think that Marcus wouldn't do this in his right mind, um... And then not only that, but he goes so far to go into a nightclub of a community he's not really not a part of to, uh, to carry out this act of revenge. And it's like, this is not the place and you may not even have the right guy because you don't even know what he looks like. And he didn't have the right guy. So I, I think part of this piece is that it's a bit of a cautionary tale. Um, to warn against the um, the action of taking revenge into your own hands, right? Um, it's not just you, the person taking, carrying it out, that is um, 
suffering you know from anything or the person you're taking it out on it's not just the two of you that are involved there's so many people involved um now everybody at the nightclub is a witness and accomplice to a murder because they were all there and they watched you do it like just don't right and the fact that marcus is so blinded by his rage and um desire for revenge that he doesn't even go to see his own girlfriend in the hospital baffling to me okay if i were in a coma and i woke up and realized that my partner had never come to visit me i would kill him myself right so like there's no that revenge is being carried out selfishly it is not being carried out at the request of another person or for the benefit of another person and so i think in that way it is slightly cautionary um, one final thing I want to touch on, and it's very quick, is just this. At the beginning of the film, there's two men laying in bed together, like I mentioned. One is naked and one is not. Um, the one that isn't is talking about Mephisto, which is... I had to do some researching because I'm like, what is that? I gotta know. Mephistopheles is this... Um, character's full name um is one of the chief demons of german literature one of lucifer's workers mephistopheles does not work to corrupt men that he encounters he comes to collect the souls of those that he determines are already damned in the world and so i think it's kind of like talking about father time or talking about like the, the proverbial father time. Um, it's kind of like talking about how some people are just off to a bad start in life, right? It's just like, it's inherent to the world. Like this worker doesn't work to change men to become, you know, different versions of themselves. He simply comes to collect the souls of those that have already fucked it up. And I don't know if this is meant to be directed more generally or if this is meant to be stated more specifically. The first thing that comes to mind for me personally when talking about this is in the event that Alex died, um... Maybe she was already, I don't even, I don't even know if this is right to say, maybe she was already damned within the world. Um, she was pregnant with Marcus's child at the time of the rape, and that's why the rapist asks her, are you wet or are you bleeding? She was bleeding she would ultimately have a miscarriage, right? That's what we can infer from that. And having, although she was in love with Marcus and enamored with him, he likely would not have been the best father. And so that was my immediate reaction was that possibly Gasper was trying to lead us to believe that this um, divine power was 
working in such a way that would, um, in a fucked up way, take Alex out of the life that she would live raising a child with Marcus? I'm not sure exactly. The only reason I say that as a potential interpretation is because this movie's so fucked up to begin with that at this point nothing would surprise me. But the second thing, if we're talking about it more broadly, more generally, um, everybody in this movie, everybody's already damned, right? Pretty much everybody is. So it doesn't matter what you do, and it doesn't matter when you do it. All that matters is that it's going to happen and there will be someone named Mephistopheles waiting for you and guys I think that's all that I have in me to talk about this film any longer today I will put um, obviously all of my sources for the articles and whatnot in the show notes if you want to read them and learn some more I thought the articles were really interesting He's uh, Gaspar Noah is a really interesting director if you'd like to take the time to read those. The last thing I have to do before I go, as you know, is um, have to remind you that The Final Girl on 6th Avenue is part of the Morbidly Beautiful Network. Morbidly Beautiful is your home for horror. If you love horror in any way, shape, or form, then you are welcome at Morbidly Beautiful with us. You can find my podcast and many others like it, such as not Your Final Girl, All-American Spook Show, as well as insightful film reviews, and so much more. So head on over to morbidlybeautiful.com and check us all out. You can find this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Pocket Casts if you enjoyed the show. It would mean the world to me if you left me a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, or requests, you can email me at finalgirlon6 at gmail.com, or you can send me a message at finalgirlon6 on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I apologize for the heavy subject matter. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I am looking forward to talking to you again in two weeks. Please have a safe and enjoyable Halloween. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you guys again soon. Thank you so much. And never forget that I'm Sixth Avenue's very own final 